0: All right, so why don't we stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. One of the things I want to pray about, I'm going to pray for George this morning. I'm sure you have needs. How many here say, Pastor, I have needs in my life? There's things I'm praying about. Just raise your hand. How many know there's a big election coming on here Tuesday in the United States? Anybody aware of that? (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, I used to jokingly say, you know, when the Americans sneeze, Canada caught a cold. I mean, we're really influenced and affected by what's going on in the state. So let's pray for that election. I think there's a lot of emotional feelings down there, and we've recognized there's a lot of uh, animosity, uh, division, tension, and so let's pray for our neighbors because, you know... How many appreciate we have good neighbors to the South, and uh, that's been a blessing to us as Canadians. We've been allowed to the luxury of enjoying universal health care because they've built the military while we've enjoyed the Medicare. Isn't that amazing? I don't think we always appreciate that, but I certainly do. So Lord, we just want to thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for our neighbors to the South. I thank you for... We have personally, family members living there. And I just pray for this election that year will be done. I pray that uh, people will respond in a, in a civil way, Father, in a loving way, in a wise way. And I also pray, Lord, for George, who's walking through the season of grief. I know that you know he was surprised by this outcome. We will all were, Lord. And yet Ruth is in a better place. We recognize that. But for George and his uh, two daughters and son to continue on without Ruth, that's a big loss. We feel it ourselves. We've known Ruth for over three decades. And so I just pray for George that you would be with him in a very special way. And then we want to rejoice for Andrew and Rachel and the beautiful love that was expressed Uh, on Friday. It's so amazing to see that when we put you first in our lives, how everything falls into place. And we certainly have seen that in Rachel's life and in Andrew's life. And Lord, I pray today as we hear your word again in the book of Proverbs, may we truly understand that your word is actually illuminating our path. It's giving us a light in how We need to walk and live, and I just pray today that you will awaken us to amazing uh, elements of wisdom, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, I think that it's fair to say that the world is watching. They'll all be tuning in Tuesday to uh, the American election. I'm sure some of you are kind of interested in what's going to happen there in the United States And I really feel that this is true that, you know, I've lived in both countries, so I have a little respect for living in two countries. And I I recognize that as Canadians, we've taken on a lot of American ideas. How many know that's true? We've been so exposed to the media, movies, uh, most of the channels that most people get are from the States. So we actually have been taking on a steady diet of Americanism into our fabric of our culture. And so it's shaped our lives in a very significant way. And so many in the U.S. are actually holding their collective breath as they're wondering how people will respond to the outcome of this election. Isn't that true? There's just a sense of that. Uh, My siblings all live in the States, and I've been talking to them, and I'm telling you, they're terrified because they're saying people are not behaving in a very healthy sort of manner. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of violence happening even before this election. And yet, in Canada, how many are aware that we've had a number of laws that have just kind of went streaming right through the House of Commons that are very significant? How many are aware of that right now? We've had some major laws that have gone through the House of Commons in the last week that I think in in the days ahead will actually impinge on some of the religious freedoms as we know it today. And I don't even think we've been aware of it. It's just gone through there so silently we hardly even hear about it. And yet, Regardless of all of these things, I think the deepest concern that people have is that how we will respond to life's most difficult, challenging things. Even in the midst of COVID, how are we going to respond? Will we respond in wisdom or will these challenges, these pressures, these difficulties in our lives cause you know, us to respond in a negative, reactive, sin-filled sort of manner? You know, we can just operate out of that, that paradigm in our lives. So how do we respond to lives when things happen we don't want to happen? That's a good question, isn't it? How are we going to respond? Yeah, middle school, you're free to go. <clears throat> I figured they know by now. <laughs> okay, thank you. So do we, do we end up, you know, fretting? How many say, you know, that we end up worrying, stewing, venting? raging, despairing, becoming discouraged, giving up. Isn't it all these actions, these emotions that flood our lives when difficult things happen? And I love James. He's one of the New Testament writers, and he's really been influenced by wisdom literature. If you read the book of James, you're almost reading the book of Proverbs, the way he frames that book. And he says in James chapter 1, verse 19, and I think it reflects what we've been studying here in the book of Proverbs. He says, Be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. How many think those are three good little admonitions? And how many recognize today that people tend to be quick to speak, slow to listen, and they're ticked off? You know, How many kind of get that sense that everything James is saying, we're doing the exact opposite today? Anybody pick up on that? We should be queuing in. I think people today are walking around shouting to be heard, uh, not listening to one another, And rather than hearing another point of view, we're filled with anger so that it quickly uh, leads to uh, violence. And that's what we're seeing a lot of in our lives. So what does the wisdom literature have to say to us regarding our involvement with the political process? I think that's an important question. Because I think, you know, as human beings, we are more political than we realize. Because... Isn't it true that we are influenced by those that are above us in leadership? They're making decisions that are going to affect our lives, and so everything becomes a politicized situation. It is true. So how are we to be involved in this process, especially when there are so many divisive issues? I was actually at a, a meeting here for our city regarding the Molly Bannister extension. And that was a pretty intense meeting, and it was a divided vote, and there was a lot of viewpoints and expressions, and it was a nine-hour meeting over this thing. Can you imagine? So I'm just gonna raise that as a question. You know, let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 24. This is, you know, the next chapter we're looking at, and I think when we look at this chapter, what we're gonna find out is there's the behavior of those that are walking in wisdom, and there are the behavior of those who are walking in folly or moral deficiency. You know, the Bible are going to describe them as the wicked. So let's take a look here, I think, of the two ways that we have to deal with evil. Is there evil in our world? Is there injustice in our world? Are there difficulties in our world? Is there disease in our world? Are there frustrations in our world? Anybody got a challenge in this world? Of course we do. So how are we gonna handle these things? So I think we're gonna look at these two ways that wise people deal with evil. And I'm, I believe that if we're walking with God, God gives us his wisdom. And then he tries to teach us what that path looks like. And the first one is that we need to learn how to advocate for others rather than being envious of the wicked, okay? I know that sounds like a lot, but it, there's, here's what you should do, here's what you should not do, And one of the great temptations of life is to desire the easy way. How many have to be honest? You like comfort and security. Anybody besides me like comfort and security? Yeah, we all do, right? I mean, let's be upfront about that. We enjoy that, and yet, at what price? You see, that's the question. You know, a lot of times, this is done at the expense of integrity, ethics, biblical values, I think a lot of decisions that are being made today, moral values are totally being pushed to the side. I think that's seen in the political process. I think people are more concerned about economies rather than what's the right thing to do and what's the just thing to do. Many envy those who have a life which have no regard for God and others because we envy you know, the sense of what's going on in their lives. I mean, isn't it true that a lot of people would say, you know, I would love to be famous. I'd love to be rich. I'd love to win the lotto. I'd love to be a movie star. I'd love to be a star athlete. I mean, it's true. A lot of people think they would love that. They envy that. Don't you think that's one of the reasons why, you know, magazines about the rich and famous sell like crazy? Because people deep down inside long to be in their place. It's the truth. And so we value those things. Rather, we say that or not. And one of the questions that I think taught a godly person is what difference is it making when you're doing the right thing at your personal expense when others around you are doing the wrong thing and seem to be benefiting from it? Isn't that kind of a frustration? How many have ever felt that way? Hey, I'm doing the right thing and it's costing me, and this other person is doing the wrong thing and they're getting ahead. Does that ever bother anybody? Well, it certainly bothered the writers... In the Bible, they certainly had a few words to say about it. And so I put down one of the great temptations of life is to be dissatisfied with what God has given us and envying those who seem to have life far easier than us. It just seems to be the way it is. And yet I would say one of the great secrets in life is learning to be content. And I believe that's a secret. And I believe that's something we have to learn. And I believe once we learn the secret of contentment and we are content, we are less apt to make poor decisions with our lives because we don't, we're not being tempted to do the wrong things in order to get something that we think will make us happy. We just need to learn to be content. Listen to what the scriptures teach us here. Psalm 37, it says, don't envy the wicked. Psalm 73 has a number of verses. He says, therefore, I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then further down, he said, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. So here's a guy that's saying, when I looked at how these guys were living and everything was going their way, and here I was doing the right thing and suffering, you know, I actually, deep down inside, he said, I was envying their life. How many appreciate the authenticity and the honesty of the psalmist? Isn't that great? He's just telling you, this is how I feel. But then you get to a verse where he says, until... I was in the sanctuary and I considered their end. And see, this is what's going to make more sense to us. You know, the problem is most people are in the moment. Most people are living in the now. They're just not thinking about what tomorrow's going to hold. And we make a lot of bad decisions in the moment that actually impact our future. And so it's important that we actually have, you know, the right values and do the right things in the moment so we have the right outcomes at the end. So here it starts here in Proverbs 24, verse 1. He says here, Do not envy the wicked. Do not desire their company. For their hearts plot violence, and their lips talk about making trouble. Now, how many recognize that? I'm going to pick on two groups today, younger people and older people. Okay, so that kind of hits us all. So a younger person are often attracted to, you know, the excitement and the vitality that usually comes with doing some of the wrong things. How many know that's probably true? You know, you sit down, you turn a television show on, there's a commercial. It's usually a beer commercial. Everyone's, you know, having a great time. Everybody looks good. You ever notice nobody, you know, they never show somebody with his head in the toilet puking. You know, I've never seen that yet in a beer commercial, you know. I just haven't seen it yet. You know, we don't see those outcomes, you know, you know. Or somebody doing something really stupid, you know, you know, you don't see that stuff. You just see these people having a merry old time. It's just like, you know, the idea they're trying to convey to you is if you do this, you get this outcome. Isn't that what they're saying? It's a subliminal message. They're telling you, hey, everybody parties, everyone's having fun, everyone's doing this stuff. And yet, so many people, that's the beginning of a life of addiction. For so many people, it's the beginning, you know, of a ruined relationship. You know, it's, you know, so many people, an unwanted pregnancy. I could just keep going down the list of things that have happened as a result of making those decisions. Wow. You know, it's interesting in chapter one, how this father speaking to his son, he's warning him about not joining the gang. And how many know in many of these uh, inner cities, and even probably in red there, there are gangs. How many know there's gangs running around? And why do people join gangs? Because they want to belong. They want to be accepted. They want to have their peers you know, like them and feel like they're a part of something. They have a part of community. They want to be a part of a community. And here he's warned in chapter 1 in verse 10, he says, "'My son of sinful men entice you. Do not give in to them.'" If they say, come along with us, let us lie and wait for innocent blood, let us ambush some harmless soul. What are they saying here? Hey, why don't we take a shortcut in life? Why would you be diligent, studious, work hard, you know, do the right things to get ahead in life? No, we'll take a shortcut. We'll just take from somebody else what rightfully belongs to them and we'll enrich ourselves at their expense. Isn't that what thieving is? That's exactly what it is. Look at verse thing. We're going to get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder my son, do not go along with them and do not set foot on their paths. And then he later on goes on, the reason being is they're actually setting themselves up to destroy their own lives, but they don't know it at the time. And a lot of people have ruined their lives because they've gone the wrong way. And yet, let's pick on the older people for a minute because, you know, I could just stop there. That's a good illustration, but let's go the other way. How many older people live bitter and resentful lives because life did not work out the way they dreamed. Oh, now I'm really going to pick on a bunch of people, you know, <laughs> and they're crabby and they're nasty and they're frustrated with life. You know, they've made decisions in life and, it's, and you know, sometimes it, it just, life hasn't turned out the way they planned. It hasn't gone that way whatsoever. And a lot of times, you know, we're so busy looking at what others have and what we don't that we feel cheated by life. And there's a lot, I've listened to enough Christians to know a lot of people feel cheated, like they're being ripped off, like God has let them down. He hasn't done everything he needed to do, you know. And I like what Paul Koptek says, that we need to develop a different attitude. And he says, looking at what we do not have, we forget that so many have so much less. Why don't we just camp there for a minute? You know, I, I've been saying this a lot. Why were you and I so fortunate to be allowed to either be born in this country or to live in this country? Why are we the fortunate ones? You know, why should, why, why should we, you know, have the kind of lifestyle where, you know, we have so much more than the, the majority of people in our world? You know, when I travel to India and I see the majority of people in abject poverty working 12 hours a day for $10 Canadian a day you know, and the hard work that they're doing. I go, why are we over here and they're over there? That doesn't seem fair to me. You see, so often when we start doing comparisons and we envy people, we always envy the people that have something more than we have, but there's a lot of people have a lot less than what we have. We have the wrong perspective. As an antidote, these sages recommended acquiring the treasure of wisdom and using them to look out for others. So instead of saying, what can I acquire? What can I get? What he's basically saying is, what can I give? Do you know, years ago, our board came to, you know, we were chatting about our fellowship. We're in an association of churches. And I loved that. I can still remember that board meeting. And the board leader said to me, Pastor, what's the advantage of being in this association of churches? And you know what my answer was? the opportunity to serve others. And that ended everything. It wasn't about what we can get, it was about what we could give. And you know, from that point on, we've never had a discussion of why we're supporting our fellowship because our church family began to understand. The leaders understood it's not about getting, it's about giving. And if you and I can make this paradigm shift in our life, it would totally transform your life, I guarantee you. If you don't think about, it's not what I'm getting out of life, it's what I'm putting into life, it's what I'm giving to life. When you start giving your life away, that's when you start discovering you have a life. The moment you start becoming generous and kind and forgiving and loving and serving, you end up enriching yourself. While you think you're enriching others, what's really happening is you're being transformed from the inside and you're becoming a better person. And to me, that's the most profound and powerful thing going. So let's just change our whole orientation. That's the problem. We're looking at it the wrong way. And I love what these sage writers are pointing out to us. He says, in our envy of those who have so much, have we neglected those who are worse off than ourselves? That's a great question. So when we shift from getting to giving, something happens inside of us. Why is it so easy to fall victim to this temptation of envying others? Bruce Walke says it happens because we live in an upside-down world. As he says, that the pro- prohibition to "do not envy evil people" assumes a morally topsy-turvy world. No one is tempted to join moral, morally repulsive people unless those morally repulsive people were successful in their quest for easy money. You're not tempted to join people like that. You just want what they have. But how many know that when that no longer becomes the goal, then you don't have any feeling of, I have to belong to this group of people. I can be free from that temptation. You know, God kind of challenged people in Malachi's day. I, you know, I, I love the book of Malachi. And one of the questions that God... Uh, spoke to them was because they were saying to God, does it really pay to serve God? Isn't that interesting? That's a question that a lot of Christians ask once in a while. Listen to what Malachi says here. You have spoken arrogantly against me. This is God talking, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. In other words, it's vain, it's empty, there's no value in serving God. Can I just scream against that and tell you that the greatest thing in this world is the opportunity to serve God with all of our heart, to put him first, to let him rule your life, to walk in his will, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If I could take every single person, I would grab them by the face and tell them, put God first in your life and just do what he tells you to do and your life will turn up far better than you could ever figure it out to become. As a matter of fact, we need to learn how to trust in God, stop leaning to our own understanding, because we're not that smart. How's that? That's pretty blunt. Okay, I'll move on. But now we call the arrogant blessed, certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. See, they were saying this, and God goes, they're not getting away with anything. For the short term, they may be, but not in the long run. Listen to what he says in verse 19, do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. In other words, sometimes we get so stewed up, so frustrated, so upset that these guys are getting away with this stuff. They're not getting away with it, folks. That's what you need to know. Listen to what it says in verse 20, for the evildoer has what? No. No future hope. Yeah. That's a scary statement. In other words, why would you envy somebody that has no future? And the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Ultimately, all evil will come to an end. You heard Angela state that. You know, when I, when I went through that series on the book of Revelation, I pointed out, evil one day will come to an end. The good news is Jesus Christ will conquer All evil. So if you're on the wrong side, you're going to be in big time trouble. You'll be on the outside looking in. And you know what the tragedy is? By that time, most people who are on the outside looking in don't want in anyways. Because they've chosen to be on the outside. God's left it up to us. You know, a great book to read is called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. If you want to understand something about hell and why people choose it, it's a great book to read. You'll see why. We become the evil that has dominated our lives. It's really sad. The wisdom literature is teaching us uh, that prosperity and power do not come from doing the wrong things. It comes from living in wisdom, the fear of God. It shapes our thoughts and actions. It actually builds community. It builds prosperity. It builds society. It builds influence for good. You know, what we have to understand is we are living on borrowed time in our cultures right now because we've had generations doing the right thing. Now we have generations starting to do the wrong thing, and we are seeing the fragmentation of community. How many say we can see it? It's becoming so evident. We're destroying community. Because, you know, folly always destroys community. Sin always destroys relationships, and that means the community. It takes wisdom to build things up. But we've lost the sense of that. Tremper Longman says, Wisdom implies the ability to say the right things and act the right way to build up community and not destroy it. To offset those warning texts about not allowing the wicked to influence us either by fretting over their initial successes or by wanting to emulate or copy their behavior, we read what really brings blessings both to ourselves and to our society. Listen to verse 3. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. You know, for years I read this, and I was always thinking in terms of the physical aspect of it, right? Right? But let's talk a, take a look at this again. Houses is not just physical buildings; it's also the people that live in the house. It's the home. It's the relationships with people. It's not just about a physical thing. It's also about a spiritual thing. And how many can say that you can live in the most—you could live in the most expensive house in Red Deer and have a miserable existence inside of that house because you have terrible relationships, or you can live in a little condo, one-bedroom apartment, a you know, a a suite and there's two of you in it and you can have the most happy, delightful time in that little room. It's not about the size of the building, folks. It's about what's going on inside of the people's hearts. As a matter of fact, I would argue that that's even more powerful. That's a rare and a beautiful treasure. I would say the rare and beautiful treasure is the work of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit at work in our hearts. Think of what Galatians says. It's the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And what is it that we all long for? We all long to be loved right? And just think about joy. How many like the word joy? I love that word. Can you imagine living in a house where you're, it's full of joy, where there's laughter, where there's peace, where there's you know, toleration of each other? That's what forbearance means. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're not just rapping off and saying nasty things to each other, making little quips and you know, tearing ourselves apart. No, we actually we're walking around speaking words of life. We're building each other up. We're encouraging one another. We're affirming, we're rooting, we're cheering each other on. We're each other's greatest cheerleaders. How many say I'd rather live in the little house where there's love than in the big house where there's hatred? That's the rare treasure. It says in Proverbs 3:19, by wisdom the Lord laid the earth foundation. Can you can I tell you? think think about what it's saying here. God used wisdom to make the universe, and it takes wisdom to build relationships. It takes wisdom to build churches. It takes wisdom to build families. It takes wisdom to build a community. And you say, well, what is wisdom, pastor? The fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and when we don't fear God, we don't reverence God, we don't do what God's saying, we don't walk in his wisdom, we don't listen to what he has to say, we just do our own thing. You know, this past week I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 11, I was reading it, and I was so impacted by it because it said, by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did this, and I said to myself, faith is obeying what God's showing you. Faith is acting on what you know is the right thing to do, and if you don't act on it, you really don't have faith. How's that? You see, we can say, well, I have faith. James says, yeah, so I can tell you I have faith too, but I'll show you my faith by what I'm doing. Because true faith always has an expression. True faith has an action with it. True faith does something. It's obedient to what God is revealing to us. So what is being conveyed here by this warning against envying the wicked and not embracing their values and finding ourselves in their company? I like what Michael Fox says. This is not Michael J. Fox, Michael V. Fox, the biblical scholar. The wicked will bring upon themselves a punishment of such force that others in their company will be afflicted by it. Why don't we just stop there and say this? How many times people have ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people and end up suffering as a result of it? The wicked will teach their associates to do evil because that's all they know is to do evil. You know, how many people have been corrupted by wicked people because that's all they know how to do is do the wrong thing. And so, you know, it says good company is corrupted by, you know, good manners are corrupted by bad company. I'm just quoting scripture. For which the latter two will suffer and the evildoers propensity to harm others will one day turn against their colleagues. Isn't that true? Hey, they don't care. You know, aside from the benefit of having an enriched home, we also see the value of wisdom prevailing in times of conflict. Proverbs 24, 5 says, the wise prevail through great power, and those who have knowledge muster their strength. Surely you need guidance to wage war, and victory is won through many advisors. Now, let's go back to verse 5. Verse 5 in the Hebrew is actually a very difficult passage. This is how it's being translated in the NIV. Okay? It's we have to understand we got we got people making translation decisions. Actually, this is how it reads in the New American Standard. In verse 5, it says it this way. uh, Oh, I didn't didn't write it out. It says, A wise man is mightier than a strong man, and a man of knowledge than he who has strength. And most scholars believe, Dr. Longman included, that this is a better than proverb, where we learn that wisdom is more important than strength. Again, as in the case with the better than proverbs, it's not a matter of strength being wrong or bad, but that wisdom is better. Indeed, the value of wisdom is not that it necessarily avoids war, but that it can provide the strategy through which strength can find its most efficient expression and thus lead to victory. What is he basically saying? Do you realize, and I, I have such an interest in history, and I've studied all kinds of wars and battles, and it's not always the one with the most men and the strongest army that wins. Does anybody know that? Many times, it's the people who have the best strategies, And that's what he's talking about here, to have the right strategy. And how many know to have the right strategy requires wisdom? Everybody see that? So if you want to choose one thing, it's always better to choose wisdom. Wisdom will help you when some of these other things won't. Here we see the downside of the wicked in verse 7 through 9. Wisdom is too high for fools. In the assembly at the gate, they must not open their mouths. By the way, the assembly at the gate is actually the legislative and judicial part of a community. This is where decisions are being made. And he's, what he's saying is, it's too high for fools. Now how many know it's a great thing when you have wise people in leadership, but it's a terrible thing when you have people in leadership who are morally deficient, because they're going to make bad decisions that are going to destroy community. That's the great tragedy. It says, "Whoever plots evil will be known as a schemer, and then in verse nine, the schemes of folly are sin, and people detest a mocker. So what does this all mean? Well, I I put down two things, two observations. One, fools lack wisdom and should not speak where decisions are being rendered because what they have to contribute lacks substance and help. And then the morally deficient are often scheming in private. That's where they do most of their work. They may not plan beneficial community strategy in a public place like the gate, but they do plot and secretly scheme in a way that's destructive to the community. And how many know a lot of people are planning nasty things behind the closed doors? It's true. It's happening. Here we see the warning against being envious of those who are wicked. Instead of plotting violence and making trouble, the wise need to be advocating on those who are struggling. We're challenged, therefore, to be part of the solution and not just part of the problem. And I would argue that if we're not part of the solution, what are we? We're part, we're part of the problem. That's exactly right, and that's problematic. And this is not, you know, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons people don't stand up against evil is why we're afraid. Let's be honest. Isn't that true? That's one of the reasons why we tolerate evil. And the more you tolerate evil, the more evil grows. And it takes a lot of courage to stand up to that which is wrong. That takes heart. That takes heart. And it takes strength, and it takes God's grace, it takes God's wisdom. And then we read this proverb, what a powerful proverb, if you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Folks, are we not living in a time of trouble? And what is God trying to challenge us? He's saying, listen, I want you to trust me. I want you to find your strength in me. I want you to find your hope in me. I want you to look to me in this time, you know? And if you'll do that, I'll give you strength. I'll help you. He says, rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Now, some have used this text to advocate against capital punishment, but I don't think that's the right use of the text. But I do believe there's other good uses here of this text. I mean, aren't we responsible to try to help people that hear the good news about Jesus and lead them away from a terrible lifestyle? You know, isn't that true? Aren't we responsible for that? And then he says, but if you knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the hearts Perceive, perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? I think here's a call to exert moral courage in addressing issues of injustice. When people are being abused and taken advantage of, we who are strong need to contend on their behalf. And Paul Coptic says it this way, there are no valid excuses for standing idle when it's possible to help. It's a call to action. Wisdom calls us to not just sit and do nothing. You know, a lot of us just sit and we make all kinds of comments and we criticize things, but we do very little to engage. Yeah. Come on now. You know, if the church would hear the call of God on their lives, you know, I, I actually appreciate, we had a young woman, I, she's younger than me anyways, when she said to me, she said, you know, I felt God speak to me about going into politics. She was never been involved in politics. God called her into it, and now I pray for her because She's under tremendous pressure because, you know what, she decided to step up to the plate. And how many know it's hard to do that? Does anybody know this is hard to do? That's why we don't want to do it. We know there's a price to pay and we don't want to pay the price. But how many say, if God tells me to do something, I need to be obedient? Come on now. So, you know, in this congregation, there's got to be people that God is speaking to and saying, listen, I want you to start doing this. I want you to start doing that. I want you to stand up for this. I want you to stand up for that. Can you see it? Could you imagine if we all heard God's voice and did what God was asking us to do, what kind of a community we would have? Instead of passively sitting back and not doing anything about things and then complaining about it. Come on. That's what we do. Listen to what Paul says. In the New Testament he says we who are strong ought to bear with the feeling of the weak and not to what? Please ourselves. Please ourselves. And isn't it true that the biggest problem we have is we're more concerned about pleasing ourselves than about caring for others? Yep. It is a sacrifice to serve other people. I'll tell you right now, it's not always fun and games. I mean, can you imagine the criticism? You know, I actually was impressed by the Spirit of God to write our premier, regardless of what he's saying or doing. I just, I felt impressed to write a letter to encourage him and to let him know that I am praying for him. You know, he wrote me back a personal letter. They don't normally do that, but you know what? It was so, it's so rare for a leader to get a letter of encouragement that when they do, it blows them away because all they get is criticism. And even he said, I said, I know it's very difficult as a leader because I'm sure you're being criticized all the time. And he wrote back to me and he said, quote, he said, many times those criticisms are justified. So he's not defending himself. But he said, what I so appreciated was the affirmation, support, and encouragement and your prayers. Isn't that amazing? So, folks, what am I trying to tell you? Don't just be a passive person. Step up. Do what God's telling you to do. You don't know the good that you can be doing in many people's lives. Each of us should please our neighbors for what? Their good. And build them up. But what are we in this culture today? We do what's good for us, and we don't care about what happens to everybody else. Something is missing in this community. Would to God that the people in this congregation would just say, you know, my job is to bless people. My job is to encourage people. My job is to build them up. (laughs) You know, I love that, you know. And when I hear it from many of you, and some of you are doing it, when I hear those great things that you do for other people, my heart just soars within me. And I know what's, what's going on. It's the Spirit of God rising up and rejoicing over the good things that you're doing on behalf of others. Often as Christians, you know, we think, I'm not doing anything bad, Pastor. Okay, that's great. That's called the sins of commission. But let me ask you a question. What good things are you doing? Well, I'm not doing a lot, Pastor. Well, let me just point out to you, as James says, you know, there's times in our life, sin is actually more insidious than just not doing the bad things. Sometimes it's just a lack of doing the right things. As a matter of fact, James says it this way in chapter four and verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It's a sin for them. That's called the sin of omission. And I wonder how many Christians sometimes that we're actually thinking, man, I'm in right standing with God. I don't do any bad things, you know. But God is looking at us and saying, yeah, but what are you doing over here to to actually help with this problem? You're passive. You're you're a critic. You're just sitting on the sidelines. God is calling you out of your, you know, your lazy boy. Come on now. Just throwing it out there. Let me move on to my second point. You said, Pastor, I shouldn't have come today. It's the wrong sermon to be listening to. (laughs) The second way a wise person deals with evil is being filled with hope rather than gloating over the misfortunes of others. Do you know one of the definitions of evil is misfortune? Now, how many of us have ever suffered misfortune? Anybody ever have misfortune in your life? Misfortune means things happen that were bad. And you're going, I don't understand why these bad things are happening to me. Anybody have bad things happen to you? Okay, we all have those experiences. And we struggle. And what, you know what sustains a person in a time of misfortune? One word, hope. Hope, okay? I love that word. Has anybody figured out that I like the word hope? We have bus benches all over the city. What's the number one word you notice on there? Hope. Because I really believe people need hope okay? So, you know, when you have hope, it'll sustain you in misfortune. It'll sustain you in COVID-19. It'll sustain you if the person that gets elected, you don't want to get elected, gets elected. Isn't that true? Yes, because you think it's great misfortune. I'm just throwing that out. The wisdom writers start by sharing an analogy of the power being confident in regards to the future, If you believe that your tomorrow will be better than today, it empowers you to endure the test in the moment. How many say that's true? If you knew that this was only a test and that eventually you would come out of it and at the end you would be better off because of this test than you were before, you could say, no problem. I can handle this. No problem. And you know what that is? That's hope. And I want to show you from scripture, you can actually have that mentality. You can think like that. Because he uses an analogy to foster and encourage the pursuit of wisdom. He says in verse 13, eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Everybody knows honey is sweet. He's going, know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there's a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. What is he saying? He said, just like honey is sweet. So wisdom is like honey. It's sweet and if you find that wisdom, it gives you a future hope, and you're going to be sustained. As a matter of fact, when you don't have hope, this is what happens. Hope, hope that's delayed makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled, hope realized, is like a tree of life. How many have ever, you know, you waited and waited waited for something, it never happened, never happened, and one day it happens. How many get a little excited? Yeah, that's what it's talking about here, right? Because the hope is now realized. And then it's reinforced in the next few couplets here. It says, uh, verse uh, 15, Do not lurk like a thief near the house of the righteous. Do not plunder their dwelling place. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Well, that's an interesting thing. Think about what he's saying here. He's, He's basically pointing out that righteous people always get back up. How many see that? Actually, seven is a symbolic number. I like what Dr. Longman says regarding this text. He says, from the proverb, the sages understood that the righteous wise would suffer in life. How many know that's true? We've all suffered somewhat. But they also have the endurance to withstand the attacks of life. Life may beat them down, but they have hope. We see that from that previous passage because of wisdom. They see beyond the present misfortune. The number seven is to be understood not literally, but rather symbolic. For the number of completeness, meaning the righteous will always get up. Here's the good news. You knock a godly person down, they're getting back up. You know, they're like that boxer. You just can't keep them down. They're just going to keep getting up. They're just going to keep getting up. just going to keep getting up. On the other hand, the wicked will fall easily. You hit them once, they're down. They have no substance. You know why? Because they have no hope. Hope is what sustains in a time of difficulty. So what should be our attitude when the wicked fall? You know, this is, this is a very interesting text. He says, we have a warning against gloating over the fall of the wicked. We should never rejoice over those whom God brings down, even though they have caused us pain. Isn't that interesting? He says, do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble. Do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. I don't know about you, but it seems to suggest here that, you know, if we gloat, then God will stop punishing them. That almost sounds like the correlation there. But how many know that, you know, I was thinking about that. How can that really fit in with the rest of the whole Bible and its understanding? And I think, well, I don't know if it's really meaning exactly that. Dr. Walke says, one may legitimately hope for God to right wrongs. I believe that's true. We can celebrate when God's righteousness prevails. I think that's true. And we must not nurse malignant revenge. As a matter of fact, if we read Romans correctly, and that's chapter 12, uh, we'll come back to this. Verse 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, here's how we need to handle our enemies. If your enemy is hungry, what are we to do? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will what? Keep burning coals on his head. That doesn't mean you're going to burn him. <laughs> no, you're blessing him. That's what it means. Why? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is he saying? You and I can win over enemies and make them friends. Isn't that a great idea? You know, Let's go back to what Robert Alden points out regarding rejoicing. He says, how can we reconcile this passage with other portions of Scripture, such as the songs of Moses and Miriam, where they were were celebrating after the Egyptians had been crushed, and numerous psalms which rejoice in God's triumphs over his enemies. The difference is one's attitude, diligently resolving to praise God for his victory rather than the defeat of the enemies. What is he saying? Our focus isn't the fact that they died. Our focus is the fact God delivered us. How many see the difference? We're not to gloat because somebody goes down. We're to rejoice that God delivered us, that God you know, helped us through that situation in our life. So we now come to the conclusion of these 30 wise sayings. We're at the last verses here, 24. And uh, here, here's what we need to realize. The consequence of association and participation with the wicked. I think we've already said it, good people sometimes stumble because they're hanging with the wrong crowd. But what we need to understand is that evil has no staying power. And that's why it's not wise on our part to be associating and hanging with the wrong crowd because they're going down and you don't want to be going down with them. That's what the scriptures are teaching us here. As a matter of fact, as we conclude this This 30 wise sayings. Here's the last two verse. I think this is fascinating. He says, fear the Lord and the king, my son, and do not join with rebellious officials. For those two will send sudden destruction on them, and who knows what calamities they can bring. So which two are they talking about are going to send calamities? Let's go back up. The Lord and the king. Okay, so what is it teaching us? Do you know what's happening in our culture today? We're anti-authority. Come on, let's just say it flat out. How many believe that our culture is anti-authority? It is. Now, I would say we're anti-authority because a lot of times authorities have abused their power, right? There's a reason for it. So I'm not saying that there's no reason for it. I'm just saying, but as a culture, we're anti-authority. Who's the ultimate authority? So when we're anti-authority, who are we against? Thank you, we're against God. So God is saying, look, if you, if you don't submit to those in authority, what's gonna happen is, one day, God and the king, God and the human authorities, are gonna take you out. They're gonna take you down. God and the authorities. Notice, those two will do it. That kind of shakes me up a little bit. Hmm, I better pay attention to this. I think, I uh, think, Paul Coptic summarizes it so well. Surprisingly, he says, the sages instruct us to practice emotional indifference to the wicked or at least refuse to indulge our reactions to their fortunes. In other words, don't envy them, but then don't gloat over their misfortune, right? Isn't that kind of what he's saying? Be indifferent to what they're doing in some sense, except for trying to help them come to faith. If we're not to envy their rise, neither are we to be glad at their fall. Perhaps this response is important because there's an ever-present danger of becoming like them in attitude and in action. And I am very concerned right now that a lot of what non-believers are espousing in our culture today, Christians are picking up and eating, and we are picking up their anger, their hurt, their pain, their frustration, and we're carrying on as if it's ours. I want to go back to Christianity for a minute. What did Jesus say when he was being crucified by people and he was dying on the cross? What did he say to those? Forgive Forgive them. Forgive them. Our message isn't to crucify them. That's what I hear many times. What we should be doing is forgiving. How many are hearing this is a totally contradictory message to what I think is being espoused today? He goes on to say... If we are to plot violence, neither are we. Are not to plot violence? How many think people are plotting violence right now at the outcome of this election in the states? Sure, they are. Neither are we to seek revenge or vengeance. Leave those who do violence to God and the King, and they will take care of it. So, how does this affect us in our country? I think we need to understand biblical wisdom. In it, there's hope, there's peace, there's stability, there's a future. In the book of James, we have this description of two kinds of wisdom. Like the Proverbs, James is challenging us not to be filled with envy and selfish ambition, which he describes as that, quote-unquote, wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's not the wisdom I want. But what does he say? But he says, uh, rather, let's have the wisdom that comes from above. It's peaceable, gentle, pure, right? brings harmony, brings peace, and let us pray that in the days ahead, that this kind of wisdom from above will actually produce these amazing fruit, and let us be delivered from envy, fret, gloating, despair, but rather let's trust God, put our hope in him, and watch the good future God has for us, because when I look at people today, everybody's painting the most bleak picture possible about the future. Well, if I'm a wicked person, I can understand it because that is their future. But if I'm a righteous person, I have hope that our future will be better. I've read the book, the last chapter. We have a better future. Let's stand. Just have you, you know, just maybe bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I believe God's spirit is speaking today How many here, you say, you know, pastor, I have to admit, I have really struggled with my emotions through COVID, through a lot of the political situation that I'm surrounded with. I have been really struggling with what's going on in my world. And I have to admit, it's created fretting, frustration, anger, discouragement, and despair. Is that you this morning? Just raise your hand, that's you. I wanna pray with you this morning. It's caused that inside of your soul. You know what I want to pray for? Peace. I want to pray for joy. I want to pray for hope. How many say, you know what? I would love to have love, joy, peace, hope, gentleness. How many say, I want the fruit of the Spirit? I want the Spirit of God to so fill me that regardless of what people are doing around me, and people are going to be all over the map, but when you walk into that situation, you're a person of wisdom. I'm going to want to be a person of wisdom, a person of self-restraint, someone that is exhibiting the grace of God. So, Lord, we do come before you. We recognize we need your help because so often we're allowing a lot of stuff that's bombarding our soul to affect our emotions, and it works us up. But I pray right now, Father, as we lay these things at your feet and understand You know, as we've heard today, your pathway, it's been illuminated for us. There's a path that we need to walk on. It's a pathway of wisdom, and it brings us hope that it will carry us through every crisis, every trial, every difficulty, every misfortune that comes our way. Father, deliver us from fretting and envying so that we can be free to, Lord, to serve others to enrich the lives of other people, to bless other people. Lord, may you give us a vision of how to help build community instead of tearing it down. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.